Hello, greetings, thanks for your interest in spiritual matters. My name is Ethan, I work with the Venice Church of Christ, where disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. Let us hear the word of Yahweh delivered to Hosea, beginning in Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall goat after Yahweh. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares Yahweh. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. Yahweh has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He'll repay him according to his deeds. In the womb he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. Yahweh, the God of hosts. Yahweh is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents, as in the days of the appointed feast. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions, and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. The Gilgal they sacrifice bulls. Their altars are also like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet Yahweh brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet he was guarded. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him, and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. So Hosea here is continuing a line of indictments and judgments and uh, prophecies that uh, began from the very beginning of the book. In the beginning of the book, we hear that the word of Yahweh came to Hosea in the days of Isaiah and through Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and Jeroboam the second king of Israel. And this is the majority of the 
8th century BC. This is a period we consider the calm before the storm, because Jeroboam ruled over a very politically and economically prosperous Israel from around 789 to 752 BC in 2 Kings 14. But his son Zechariah would be assassinated, and Israel would then endure 30, in 30 years, five kings, and only one of them would die naturally. And in 732, the Assyrians would capture all but Samaria, and 10 years later, eliminated that rump state left in Samaria and possibly also known as Ephraim. And so Hosea warns the people in a time of prosperity that was going to become destruction in a very short amount of time. And he would seem to live to see it all play out. In the first three chapters, began with this illustration of uh, Hosea taking a wife of harlotry and enduring the same kind of shame and pain uh, through his marriage relationship that Yahweh did in his covenant with Israel. And Yahweh brought forth this charge against his adulterous wife Israel that she thought all the produce that Yahweh had given her actually came from Baal. She lavished gifts on her idol lovers, and she did not give the service due to God. And God would come in judgment. She would recognize her heir. But Yahweh would not abandon Israel. There would be hope for Israel in the future. Yahweh would restore Israel to himself. And so Hosea took back Gomer. And loved her again, and just as Yahweh will love Israel again. And so that theme begins the first three chapters. In chapters 4 and 5, there's an indictment and judgment that Israel is full of blood, destroyed by lack of knowledge, and the priests are condemned, the people live as pagans, and judgment is rendered because Israel is saturated and idolatry will be destroyed. They're going to seek Yahweh, but he's not going to be there for them. Uh, the theme is continued in chapter 6 and 7, this idea of them as covenant transgressors. The Yahweh extended hope for uh, future healing and restoration, but for the time being, Israel maintains this pretense of grandeur and looks to be saved by foreign policy and is going to be her demise. Likewise, in chapters 8, 9, and 10, this idea of sowing the wind and reaping the whirlwind, that the consequence of the sins that Israel has perpetuated will come, and the consequence that reaping is destruction, that Yahweh is going to come on a day of recompense against Israel, that Israel has become detestable, that Israel king, trusts in kings and foreign policy, and therefore judgment is coming. And so we've seen in chapter 11 and 12 how Hosea is continuing in a similar themes, although he's exploring new images to describe these very same ideas. They're very compelling when he begins chapter 11 with this idea that Israel as a child, as, as Yahweh as a father, Israel as child. And it's a pretty decent shift in, uh, in illustration in Hosea 11, 1 through 7 here, that it, no longer Yahweh's husband, uh, Israel's wife, now Yahweh father, Israel as child. Not that they're contradictory, they're metaphors. They, they, they are exploring different elements of the relationship. And in fact, the whole idea here in these first few verses of chapter 11 is that Yahweh uh, loves Israel as a son, called him out of Egypt, to reference the Exodus. Uh, Matthew will quote this about Jesus in Matthew 2.15, uh, which we'll talk about later. But every time they, whoever they are in verse 2, uh, they or perhaps it's, the more, it's a passive uh, here, the more they were called, they uh, went further away. And... Um, they sacrificed to Baal, they sacrificed to idols, and they've gone away from the God who raised them. In fact, you can even hear the dismay in verse 3. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, I took them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. And he's just really sad. And this parental marriage continues, the idea that he always led Israel with cords of kindness and bands of love, giving provision of food. 
Uh, there's some versions will read chords of a man here, and it's understandable based on the word Adam here, but uh, it's probably another word, not the word that means man, but a word that means kindness. It's overall an agricultural image about the wilderness wandering and the giving of the law that uh, normally uh, one who leads oxen with ropes harshly, but God has not led them harshly. He led them gently, and yet, uh, and despite all that, gave them food and provisions and things, uh, and yet they've turned from him. But in verses 5 through 7, uh, Yahweh returns from the lament to set forth the consequences. They're not going to go back to Egypt. All these illustrations earlier about Egypt were, uh, should not be taken to mean they were going back to Egypt explicitly. They're going to go, in fact, to serve the king of Assyria. Their cities are going to fall by the sword, and all because of people who were intent on backsliding. They did not want to return to Yahweh in truth. And that day they're going to call on him. They're going to cry out, but he's not going to answer them, and their doom will be established. And yet in verses 8 and 9, we have a profound shift where um, God almost recoils in, in horror, asking how he can give up Ephraim. How can he hand Israel over? How can he make them like Adma and Zeboim? Adma and Zeboim are the two smaller, mostly forgotten towns near Sodom and Gomorrah. You can read about them in Genesis 14, 8 and 19, uh, 24 through 25. And they were destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, it's not a negation of the promise of judgment here, because he says, I will not again destroy Ephraim. Uh, we are invited to see this as uh, something we see often in the prophets, that a judgment has happened, something's gone on, and then the prophet envisions the uh, response of God after that moment of judgment. So here we're invited to see uh, Yahweh having devastated all of Israel by the hands of Assyria, even though it hasn't happened yet. Hosea is envisioning that, and then speaking of Yahweh recoiling in horror at the idea of entirely exterminating uh, the people here. Um, it's a testimony to uh, Yahweh's covenant loyalty that even though he needs to exact righteous judgment against the recalcitrant rebellious Israel, he still uh, yearns for them to return, yearns to heal them, yearns to make sure they are not exterminated. And it's an important testimony. Yahweh is God and not a man. Man is made in the image of Yahweh. Man is corrupted. Yahweh has not been corrupted. And... And so Hosea then envisions in verses 10 and 11 a day when Yahweh will call Ephraim and Israel back like a lion. They come trembling out of exile, fearful, but yet they come uh, to follow uh, the Lord. And there's this little little vignette here uh, between the images uh, and before the indictment here, uh, variously uh, put. It's chapter 12, verse 1 in Hebrew, verse, chapter 11, verse 12 in our English Bibles, and also in verse 1 of chapter 12, this idea that... Uh, Israel surrounds Yahweh with lies, but Judah is striving for faithfulness. Ephraim is feeding on the wind, participates in violence, and they're trusting in foreign policy. And it's going to be their undoing. It's interesting, then verse 2, Yahweh will have an indictment against Judah uh, as well. But then verse uh, 12, they're walking with God and faith with the Holy One. And it shows there's this ambivalent handling of Judah in Hosea. Uh, we tend to assume that, you know, the Hosea, the prophets should have a better view of Judah, Judah in general, uh, although they are very clear-eyed about the sins of Judah, even though there is the temple there, they don't have a statue in it. Uh, you look throughout that, uh, yes, there's a recognition Judah is more faithful than Israel is, but they are also subject to chastisement, they're going to be all exiled as well. And this is a prominent theme so far. Uh, Judah is mentioned in Hosea 1, 7, 11, chapter 4, 15, chapter 5, verse 5, and verses 10 through 14, chapter 6 and verse 4 and 11, chapter 8, 14, and chapter 10 and verse 11. So it's many references to Judah. Uh, for somebody who is a northern Israelite prophet, directed primarily, almost exclusively, to Israel. 
Now, beginning in verse 2 of Hosea 12 in the English versions, and continuing through the rest of the chapter, and probably even into chapter 13 as well, which we are Lord willing to discuss at a different time, we have this indictment of Judah and Jacob. And even though Judah's mentioned, the focus is very clearly on Jacob throughout. What's interesting is, is that uh, we see this uh, embodiment so far. We see, we see a discussion of Jacob himself. That Jacob contended with his brother and with God and prevailed. He saw God at Bethel. That Yahweh is the God of hosts. And we see this uh, in Genesis 25-33 through 33 in the life experiences of Jacob. As Jacob turned to God and Jacob's trials led him closer to God, Hosea exhorts Israel to now turn back to God, that they would maintain chesed, covenant loyalty and justice, to wait for God, in verse 6. But in the meantime, uh, Israel, Ephraim, has become wicked and oppressive and deceitful, and they imagine that their wealth have come without iniquity. But uh, do not be afraid, Yahweh, who is a God who led Israel out of Egypt, has seen, and he's going to cause them to again dwell in tents, to dwell in exile, to dwell in wilderness, just as their forefathers had done. That, in fact, Yahweh has spoken through the prophets, has given them visions and parables. And that condemnation is again decreed for the iniquity of Gilead and Gilgal. We would understand as a northern, southern uh, Yahweh calf cult locations, Dan and Bethel. And they multiply altars and sacrifices. And then the uh, comparisons are brought home. That uh, Jacob fled to the land of Aram, and he uh, worked for a wife there. Uh, by a pro uh, And for a wife he guarded sheep. And then a prophet... Uh, Yahweh used to bring Israel out of Egypt and was guarded by a prophet. But now Ephraim is given bitter provocation and he's going to have his guilt on him and he's going to be paid for all the disgraceful things he's done. And there's a wordplay here that gets lost in translation. Israel kept, which is Hebrew Shemar, uh, for a sheep for a wife. By the prophet Moses, Israel was kept Shemar in the sense of saved or preserved. And so the whole idea is that when Israel has trusted in God, God has made provisions. When Israel went astray in the wilderness, Moses interceded for the people, and they were delivered. But now Ephraim is so full of wickedness that there's no real trusting in God, and therefore there's no redemption hope. There's, there's retribution. There's going to be blood and reproach in death and exile, as they're going to experience. So what can we get here out of uh, Hosea chapters 11 and 12? Huh? This is a very compelling image here in chapter 11, this idea uh, of Israel as a child and, and Israel as the son of God. Uh, we find a lot of metaphorical vehicles in Scripture that we help us understand the relationship between God and His people. And what's interesting is for us as Christians, the parent-child metaphor, the idea that God is our Father and, and the believer is, is a child, is so intuitive as to be taken for granted. That's how Jesus related to God, and He taught us to do that as well. And the apostles followed suit. So we see that in Matthew 6, 5-15. through 15. Uh, Jesus' is a great discourse in John 5, 19-46. And Paul is saying that we cry out, uh, Abba, Father, in Romans 8, 11-17, uh, through the spirit of adoption. Now, the metaphor exists for, you know, God as Father and Israel is child, like here in Hosea 11, but it's not primary and fundamental, as it is in the New Testament. The primary metaphor is what we've seen earlier in Hosea, and most consistently in Hosea, and you can see it in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and other prophets, the idea of Yahweh's husband, Israel as wife and covenant relationship, so as to explain how the idolatry Israel was perpetuating was, in fact, a form of adultery or even prostitution. In Hosea, this metaphor is, is very powerful and evocative, this idea of father and son. As we've noted before in, in previous discussions about parts of Hosea, Hosea is not exactly providing a new message all the time. The substance of the message is the same. 
you've departed from God because of your idolatry, your trust in your military and your foreign policy, and you're going to pay for it unless you change. Um, and he's just putting it in different dress. You know, adulterous wife, faithful husband, may not have touched an Israelite, thinking that was something different, something they would maybe not be able to experience. Maybe where that would fail, the idea of a wayward child and a devoted father uh, might touch them, where they would maybe be able to empathize more with the situation that Yahweh is in with Israel, and that might help them turn, recognize what they've done and turn away from it. And again, we hear, we can even hear the saddest resignation, that God has put all his investment, he has cared for, lifted their arms, and that I healed them, and they didn't turn to me and recognize that. And and it's a very Im immediately striking, painfully visceral image for anybody who is in Israel who is a father or a mother. To have gone through all that effort, all that work, all that worry, all that concern, all that praying, and that it's not even acknowledged. And Hosea's audience would mostly be fathers or mothers. Now it's worth discussing Matthew 2.15 in this context, because it's really been puzzling for a lot of people. Wait a second, wait a second. Matthew grabs on to this out of Egypt I call my son. Okay, Jesus went down to Egypt. And, ah, Jesus, ah, out of Egypt I call my son. And it seems to be kind of the ultimate demonstration of proof texting by the evangelists. You know, yes, God called Israel out of Egypt. Jesus spent a short time in Egypt with someone back by an angel. But we see here contextually that doesn't have it seemed to have anything to do with Jesus, right? Because the whole idea here is this idea of Hosea developing this metaphor of Israel as child, Yahweh as father, has a lot more to do with uh, what went on in the land of Israel than what happened in Egypt. Uh, and so it's caused a lot of consternation for people. But very easy to try to assume that Matthew had no idea what he was doing or didn't know his scripture, but we shouldn't do that because maybe we need to trust him for a minute and see what he's doing here. Because Matthew's a pretty smart guy, and he's quite aware in context that Hosea is speaking of Israel. And maybe that's, in fact, precisely why Matthew is quoting Matthew 11, verse 1. Because Matthew sees what Hosea is doing himself and does the same thing. So what's interesting, as, we, as we're going to see in, in Hosea 11 and 12, that Hosea keeps going back to past events, uh, envisioning the impending exile that they're going to experience in terms of the exile that the Israelites experienced in the days of Egypt. He understands Israel's behavior in terms of the patriarch that gave him their name. And so if you can understand the behavior of the nation of Israel in terms of Jacob the man, is it a stretch to imbibe the story of the nation of Israel and Jesus of Nazareth to go the other way? And I'd suggest, therefore, Matthew really does perfectly understand Hosea. And he in, he's trying to show that Jesus is the fullness and completion of what God has attempted to do through Israel to nation. That Jesus would undergo birth, deliverance from Egypt, a sojourn in the wilderness, time in the land, and exile and return. <coughs> in death and resurrection, excuse me, and bring the story of Israel to its next phase. And Matthew can do this because Jesus prefigures it. Jesus is the son of the embodiment of the covenant people. God is the Father. Where Israel had failed to listen to Yahweh, Jesus the Son learned by what he suffered and entrusted to himself to God as his healer. That God would raise him up again. Uh, what Israel should have recognized Yahweh was doing for her, Jesus trusts in, and therefore Jesus embodies uh, what Israel has not been doing while embodying the story of Israel. And it's through what Jesus accomplished that we can now reckon ourselves as children of the Heavenly Father because of what Jesus has done for us. We also get the startling picture in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 11 with, with Yahweh recoiling in horror at what will be done to Israel and Ephraim, that his heart and compassion are turned again. 
this is not God contradicting himself. It might be easy to think that, you know, how can you be denouncing them all the time and then all of a sudden say something like this? Well, it's a trope we see frequently in the prophets, that there's this idea that after the judgment's taken place, that there's this hope of healing and, and recoil of what's happened. Uh, and this is a message of hope, ironically. Yes, Israel is being judged very sharply right now, and for good reason. But Yahweh's going to relent. He's not going to exterminate his people. And he even speaks about restoration. Now, unfortunately, in terms of any kind of substantive restoration, but in Second Temple period is disputable. And it's most likely fulfilled in the coming of many who lived in Assyria to the gospel of Christ uh, in the first and second century and, and continuing. But we do well to also reflect on this little story in terms of our own theology, because one of the pillars of post-apostolic ideas of God is involves impassibility, that God is not moved by emotion. And there's some solid reasons to uphold as God is impassable, but we can't turn God into an automaton in the process. Because God does experience genuine recoil and horror. And this passage speaks toward God's great chesed, his great covenant loyalty, his stronger desire to save and to bless than to condemn and destroy. And then the question comes to us, can we be okay with that? With God being that way? Can we draw strength and encouragement from God being that way? And, and hope and trust our own salvation in Him. At the same time, part of the logic he uses there is that yeah, Yahweh is a God and not a man in Hosea 11.9, the Holy One, the midst of Israel. In context, yes, Hosea is assuring Israel. Humans are blindly motivated by greed, lust, and hate. And they commit genocide and ethnic cleansing. Yahweh's judgment is measured, and he's not going to fully destroy Israel. But it's good to remember in general, Hosea reminds us, because it's easy sometimes to get very caught up in Jesus' incarnation to think that God, maybe even the Father at some point had been human, as some religious groups like the Mormons have posited, uh, but reminded here that there is that distance between God and man, uh, something like we see in Isaiah 55, 8, 9, that the heavens are higher than the earth, so the ways of Yahweh are higher than our ways, and his thoughts than our thoughts. So it's very interesting that at the very moment that we see Yahweh showing emotion and being more quote-unquote humanized in that sense, we're reminded that he is not human, but fully in control and acts according to love, covenant loyalty, but also justice and righteousness. And so we are to serve he who is God, the Holy One in the midst of his people. We need to draw near to him and relate to him, but we must never imagine that he is anything less than the creator God that he is, that he is God and he is not man. And throughout Hosea 12, we have this tracking between Jacob and his life and the behavior of Israel. You know, Jacob grabbed the heel of his brother and cheated him, and Ephraim has deceptive scales. Jacob had to leave the land and returned. Israel had to do that in Egypt in the Exodus. Jacob had to depend on God in his sojourn, so Israel did also in the wilderness. But Hosea is making this comparison for Israel to see it through to the end, because Jacob prevailed against God and called upon him at Bethel. Jacob learned to trust in God and made Yahweh his God. By the prophet Moses, God had preserved Israel in the wilderness. If only Israel would make that same term Jacob did, and call upon God truly and look to him for their preservation, they would be delivered. But Israel will not follow in Jacob's footsteps, and therefore judgment and condemnation will come upon them. And as we've seen, Jesus of Nazareth, who is the embodiment of Israel, would trust in God, and through him would uh, fulfill the promises. And God would, through him, fulfill the purposes God had for Israel. But we do well to see how Hosea understands Israel in terms of Jacob. And Matthew will see Jesus as the embodiment of Israel, and to recognize that we also are to be the embodiment of Jesus' character, to, to be like he is, because he is fulfilling all God would have him do, and provides a pathway for us. Now, could we be compared to Israel or Jesus? And how would that comparison go? 
if a prophet like Hosea came and said something similar to us, uh, what would he say to us about what we would need to change in order to, to, to please God? And uh, what person about my heap appeal to and to show uh, parallel tracks in our lives? Would it be Jesus? Or would it be somebody who uh, had a lot to answer for on the Day of Judgment? And this way we've looked at some of the things Hosea says to Israel in Hosea 11 and 12, that Israel is Yahweh's wayward child, that Yahweh would not entirely destroy Israel, but would ultimately restore them, that Yahweh has an indictment against Israel. They're like Jacob and his youth, but they haven't developed in faith like Jacob did, and they're going to be therefore cast into exile. Nevertheless, Jesus embodies the story of Israel as the Son, and through him we can now call upon God as our Father. And therefore we do well to seek God in Christ, to know God as our healer, to serve God in Christ, to obtain the resurrection of life. We're so thankful that you've joined us. If you've been benefited by this message, we encourage you to share it on social media with friends and others. Uh, if there's any way we can be of service, maybe you have some questions about some of the things we've mentioned. Maybe you'd like to have a prayer request or, or consider other topics or things to consider. Maybe you'd like to come meet with us or have a study with us. Please uh, find us online at VeneshurchOfChrist.org if I can be of service as well. At my website, you can get a hold of me, DeVerboVitae.com. That's www.D-E-V-E-R-B-O-V-I-T-A-E.com. We again thank you. Have a great day.